lying, the trail, backbiting, and double-crossing. These words describe some of the TV shows you may have seen or heard about recently. Now, these words don't typically describe a sitcom or many of the documentaries and docu-series. These words describe intense TV dramas and especially the reality TV shows. Executive producers, writers, and television critics have portrayed reality as a life filled with liars and traitors and double-crossers. And you know what? I agree with them. Join me as we begin our new Bible Thread series entitled Traitors. But unlike reality TV shows, the traitors that we're about to experience aren't people at all. They're the attitudes of people. They're attitudes that can turn us into actual traitors, betraying our God, betraying other people, and even betraying ourselves. These traitors can end up destroying our relationships, stealing our joy, our peace, and even our life itself. The Bible is incredibly interconnected with threads that run through it from beginning to end. In this podcast, I will uncover these threads, help you dig deeper into God's truth, and inspire you to live your life with greater confidence and joy. Welcome to Bible Threads with me, Dr. Bruce Becker. Have you ever heard of the seven deadly sins? The traitors in our lives, the attitudes that have the potential to betray, include the seven deadly sins, but are, are far more in number, far more than just seven. In this podcast series, we'll look at classic examples of betrayal, as well as more obscure ones. We'll explore how these traitors showed up in the lives of people we meet in the Bible. But more importantly, will unveil the traitors in our own lives. That is, if we have fallen into their traps and let them control our lives. So what are the seven deadly sins and from where did they originate? Well, let's take the second question first. The modern version of the seven deadly sins is linked to Christian monasticism in Egypt during the first few centuries AD. Since then, they have gone through a few iterations. The seven deadly sins commonly known today are pride, greed, envy, anger, lust, gluttony, and laziness. And to this list of seven, we're going to add three more for this podcast series. Deception, worry, and apathy, giving us ten in all. Traitors more than just the seven deadly sins. So, are the seven deadly sins listed in the Bible, you may ask? Well, yes and no. There is no actual list of the V7, but all seven, as we'll discover, do show up in the Bible. In the book of Proverbs, there's a listing of seven things the Lord God hates. There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. Proud eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, 
a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a person who stirs up conflict in the community. Some of them are the same, some different. Then in Mark's Gospel, we read words spoken by Jesus. Another list. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. In Jesus' list of sins, there are twelve that he mentions. All of them are traitors, too. As I said, there's more than just the seven. So let's get started. Today we begin with the traitor known as pride. The first thing we have to say is that pride isn't always a traitor. There is a pos positive usage of this word. For example, a parent might say of a child, I'm proud of what she did in school. Or a manager at work might say, I, I'm proud of what our team accomplished in our latest project. Even the Apostle Paul expressed pride in his second letter to the Christians living in Corinth. He said, I have spoken to you with great frankness. I take great pride in you. I am greatly encouraged. In all our troubles, my joy knows no bounds. In the Bible, the word translated as pride in some translations occurs 63 times. Only seven times, however, uh, the word occurs in a positive context, and all of them in the New Testament. Fifty-six times, it's in a negative context. So what's the difference? The Greek word that Paul used in his letter to the Corinthians simply means the basis for or the content of one's feelings of legitimate pride. Pride can have a healthy, positive connotation of worth, confidence, and respect. But there are other Greek words in the New Testament that can also be translated as pride or arrogance. For example, in that same letter to the Corinthians, Paul wrote, for I'm afraid that when I come, I may not find you as I want you to be, and you may not find me as you want me to be. I fear that there may be discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, slander, gossip, and here you go, arrogance, and disorder. In the Hebrew language of the Old Testament, the words for pride have a connotation of height. In other words, that a person is bigger than they actually are. In the Greek language, the words for pride have a sense of being puffed up or inflated, being wider than you are. The sin of pride is an attitude of the heart that is expressed in an exaggerated fixation on self and an inflated view of one's knowledge, abilities, achievements, and importance. You've heard people say, he has an inflated ego, or she's so conceited. Well, that's pride. What's more is that sinful pride is actually rebellion against God because it steals the honor and glory that belongs to God and takes it for oneself. Pride focuses on oneself rather than on God. Pride is the exact opposite of humility, 
a trait that pleases God, and one that he highly rewards. Chris Bollinger, who is a contributing writer for Crosswalk.com, wrote a, an article recently entitled, Six Insights from C.S. Lewis on Why Pride is the Greatest Sin. Here are those six insights that he gleaned from C.S. Lewis. A proud person has to be better than everyone else. A proud person is never satisfied. A proud person craves power. Pride makes you God's enemy. Pride makes you vulner vulnerable to the devil. And you can be blind to your own pride. As C.S. Lewis observed, one of the insidious aspects of pride is that it is very difficult to spot in yourself when you look at yourself in the mirror. The prophet Obadiah, in the vision he received from the Lord God, predicted the destruction of the nation of Edom. And this is what he said about Edom. The pride of your heart has deceived you. So we see here that pride doesn't just affect people. It can permeate an entire nation. Another insidious aspect of sinful pride in the Bible is that it doesn't usually end well. King Solomon wrote in his Proverbs, Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. You might know this verse better as, Pride goes before the fall. Solomon also wrote, When pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with humility comes wisdom. So let's take a look at the lives of several people we read about in the Bible who were consumed with pride betrayed by it, and in the end, humbled by God for it. First is the Pharaoh who ruled Egypt at the time of Moses and the Exodus. So which Pharaoh was this? Historians don't agree. Now, there are two main views for the date of the Exodus. The late view places the event in the 13th century BC under Ramses II, while the early date view places it in the 15th century BC under Amenhotep II. I favor the early date with Amenhotep II as Pharaoh. Here's why. The Bible actually establishes the date of the Exodus in 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 1. There we're told that Solomon began the construction of the Jerusalem temple in the 480th year after the Exodus. Now, there is widespread agreement among historians that the construction of the temple began in either 967 or 968 B.C. That puts the Exodus date at either 1446 or 1445 B.C. And who is Pharaoh? Amenhotep II. Back to our story. Moses and Aaron confronted Pharaoh with the demand. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the desert. Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. Now keep in mind that the ancient Egyptians believed that the Pharaoh was a god in human form. Pharaoh himself believed that he was a god. So Amenhotep would not have been accustomed to taking orders from another god. 
in his view, a lesser God, an unknown God, like Yahweh. So he refused Moses' request, which began a lengthy struggle between himself as an egotistical ruler who thought he was a God, and the Lord God of heaven and earth. After the tenth plague in which Pharaoh's firstborn son died, who was also considered a god, Pharaoh let God's people go. But then he changed his mind and pursued the Israelites with his army. As the Israelites were camped by the waters of the Red Sea with the Egyptian army closing in, the Lord God said to Moses, Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all of his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots, and horsemen. So, how did things turn out for prideful Pharaoh? Uh, not well at all. The entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea, not one of them survived. Pride does go before the fall. Another example from the Old Testament is King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. He is the king who conquered the land of Judah and carried away God's people into exile. Earlier in his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had a disturbing dream that he couldn't remember what it was about. So he asked his wise men to tell him what the dream was about and then what it meant. <laughs> Not surprisingly, none of them could. Nebuchadnezzar became so angry that he ordered that all the wise men in Babylon be executed. Included among the wise men were Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. When Daniel learned of the execution order, he asked to come before the king and interpret the dream. The Lord God gave Daniel the ability to explain what the dream was about and then to interpret it. Fast forward to another dream Nebuchadnezzar had. It was a weird dream about a tree that was big and strong. But then a holy one came down from heaven and ordered that the tree be cut down with only the stump and roots remaining. Well, Nebuchadnezzar called for Daniel to interpret this dream as well. Daniel reluctantly told Nebuchadnezzar that he represented the tree. The time would come when the Holy One from heaven would remove Nebuchadnezzar from his throne. And then for seven years, Nebuchadnezzar would live with the wild animals and wake up drenched with dew each morning until, and this is the key point, until you, Nebuchadnezzar, acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree and its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, Is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? Remember, pride goes before the fall. Immediately, what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from the people and ate grass like the ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. 
Then the Bible relates Nebuchadnezzar's own words. He said, At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified Him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, What have you done? At the same time that my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out, and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of heaven, because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Did you catch what the world's most powerful king at that time in history had acknowledged? And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Well, those are two examples of pride in the Old Testament. Let's look at two examples from the New Testament. The first one is one of Jesus' own disciples, Simon Peter. On Thursday of Holy Week, Jesus told his disciples, This very night you will all fall away on account of me. Peter replied, Even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, Even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. Proud Peter had an inflated view of himself, of his courage, of his loyalty to Jesus. And how did that turn out for Peter? Not well at all. When a servant girl suggested that he was one of Jesus' disciples, he denied it. He denied even knowing Jesus. Three times. And then the rooster crowed. Pride goes before the fall. The triple denial of Peter is linked to the three repetitive questions made by Jesus to Peter at the Sea of Galilee after Jesus' resurrection. Simon, son of John, do you love me? With these three questions, Jesus allowed Peter to declare publicly his love for Jesus. It was an act of grace and forgiveness on the part of Jesus. Peter was then restored in his relationship with Jesus and his fellow disciples. Pride may go before the fall, but there is forgiveness through Jesus after the fall. The other New Testament example of pride that we want to consider involved a group of people known as the Pharisees. And, and not just the Pharisees, there were other Jewish religious leaders who were consumed with pride also such as the teachers of the law. In Matthew chapter 23, Jesus spoke about them to his disciples and to the crowds following him. He said, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, so you must be careful to do everything they tell you. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. 
They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide and their tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplace and to be called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father, and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. The greatest among you will be your servant. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. The Pharisees treated people terribly. It was an expression, an outgrowth of pride in their hearts. The Apostle Paul, in his second letter to Timothy, indicated that in the last days, the days in which we are living right now, pride will be widespread. Paul said, but mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying its power, have nothing to do with such people. These words of Paul seem quite descriptive of the culture in which we are currently living, don't you think? Did you know that it was pride that also caused the fall of Satan? Satan is the originator of sinful pride. In his first letter to Timothy, the Apostle Paul listed the qualifications for a person wanting to be a teacher in the church. One of the qualifications was, he must not be a recent convert, or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. The word conceited is the same as pride, and that is what drove Satan as he rebelled against God in heaven. And how did things turn out for Satan? Pride went before the fall. If you want to learn more about Satan and his fall from heaven, I wrote a short book entitled, Give Satan the Credit He Is Due. You can get a copy at timeofgrace.org. In it, I explain two Old Testament prophecies that speak to Satan's fall. So, how do we keep from becoming filled with pride and suffering its consequences? Just remember one word. Humility. Listen to the encouragement from the apostles John, James, and Peter. John wrote, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. The Apostle James wrote, Who is wise and understanding among you? 
Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. And Peter, all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, because God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Humility is the cure for pride. Traitors, they're the attitudes that can betray our relationship with our God, with others, and even with ourselves. In our next episode, we'll explore the traitor known as greed. If you have any questions about this podcast, please email me at bruce at timeofgrace.org. I'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening, and God bless.